0: The Greenhouse Show on KSL News Radio.
2: Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Chalaios, Ton Bettis with you this morning. Taking your calls at 801 575 8255. You can also text us at 57500. Next listener, Ton says, there are a large variety of Japanese maples, and how do they generally do in our alkaline soil?
3: Yeah, they do ish.
2: They do ish.
3: <laughs> yeah, the Japanese maples, and there's, it's not just alkaline soil, which a lot of times they tolerate our soil just fine. But the issues we run into with Japanese maple include, one, they are native to a climate where they may rarely reach over 90 degrees, mm-hmm. a lot more humidity, acidic soil, And so in the more mild winters, Japan, even though areas of Japan can get a lot of snow, there's a lot of Japan that have not, I wouldn't call it mild winters, but more mild than what we get. And then, you know, Southern Japan can be quite warm in the winter sometimes, getting into Okinawa and things. So at any rate, because we live in a semi-arid area with humidity between 5 and 15%, they need to be planted in shaded areas. And so Bloodgood is a variety that seems to do better here than a lot of others. But the lacier the leaf, the more of a struggle it is sometimes to get them established.
2: Okay. I did plant Bloodgood this year. Replaced one tree that died with the Bloodgood. They're yeah, beautiful trees. They are.
3: And that's our Utah go-to. If you're starting out with the Japanese maple, Bloodgood is one that seems to perform fairly well here.
4: Okay.
2: Bonnie is on the line in South Jordan. Good morning, Bonnie. What was your question?
4: Yes. My question is, I have in my garden, I have raised beds. They're like 18 inches high. On the end of one of, or two of the beds, I have large mushrooms. <laughs> and uh, and I realize we've had this wet climate, but it's only on these two areas and they're kind of a golden color. And on the other bed, on the edge, on the is they're little like little pellet-looking things, and, and kind of like a mat. And I, I think that's kind of a fungus of some kind. Uh, I guess mushroom. I don't sure. I guess I'm trying to figure out the safest way to remove them and and what to do. <laughs> I don't want to affect my well, garden.
3: The yeah. mushrooms, as you mentioned, are there because of our cooler, wetter weather, especially over the last two or three weeks. I. So they are going to diminish on their own with hotter temperatures. So the thing I could really recommend doing is making sure that your lawn dries out between irrigations. You don't want it to brown out, but you oh, want, I'm
4: sorry. go ahead. This is in my garden.
3: Oh, in the garden. Excuse me. So in even my... then, um, if, it says here in your raised beds, do you have artificial soil in there? I
4: do. I had, um, uh... I had a blend brought blends brought in you know what I mean, and uh I got a really good product with blends, uh, yeah, with-
3: okay, did it have mushroom compost in the mix that they gave you?
4: I don't think so, okay. but i I'd have to go back and check.
3: there's every once in a while some of the nurseries will carry just a compost that's just called mushroom mix, and it's from mushroom farms, and sometimes all of a sudden you'll put this in your garden and then you've got um the, all of a sudden, these chanterelle mushrooms growing up in your garden. I don't want you to eat them, but I just wanted to make sure that wasn't it. So all you're going uh, to no. be able to do is just keep picking the tops off of them, and hopefully, with hotter weather, they diminish. And because,
4: this little one, like this other one, looks like it's a little pellet. Yeah, and thing. it's probably
3: a slime mold. Um, sometimes they're called dog vomit fungus. And it's really a slime mold <laughs> ah. that comes up out of the ground, and just kind of coats the ground, I would suspect, and it just scrape it off, it's harmless if you just throw okay. it away
4: that's what I wondered. it's not going to harm my vegetables
3: no, it's not like this the creature from the black lagoon is slithering up out this of has your a raised bed, yes, Ugh. yeah, I, so either way, slime mold or dog vomit, fungus, but yeah, just Had to say it again, yeah, just <laughs> grab a gardening trowel or something and just scrape it off, and it. It's fine. What they're doing okay. is just decomposing organic matter, and you've had the luck of the draw to get both of them in your raised beds.
4: I see. Thank you. Uh, I have one other quick question. I am raising for the first time, well, in this garden anyway, I decided to raise some potatoes. And so I I put them in my raised bed, and, and I realized I probably did it incorrectly. So now I have a whole bunch of green coming up. But I don't have – and I've read different things. I, you're supposed to cover them with soil or not cover them with soil. And so I don't have the room to, like, cover them with dirt. So I don't know. Do I just leave them or is that going to be a potato or – you know what I'm saying?
3: If – you can cover them with compost or even grass clippings. Uh-huh. So if you just it- don't have room, go ahead.
4: It's like they're at least 12 inches high now, the green. I mean, it's growing. They're growing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
3: (laughs) yeah. And so if you wanted to get, say, some grass clippings or some compost or something, even bagged, you know, in a bag and just cover them with some compost, that would be fine. But if you leave them alone, then I think you'll still get potatoes.
4: Oh, okay. (laughs) Experimenting is what I'm doing. So thank you very much. All right, and and one other quick question: Are we not going to have my trees don't have apples this year? Is that not is that pretty common?
3: Apples can develop a uh, biannual bearing pattern, to where one year you get too many, and then the next year you get none. And the only way around that is when the apples are about dime sized, you thin them so you have one apple per cluster, and you leave the biggest apple. It's called the king bloom or the king apple. And you leave that one and then pull the other ones off so you have about one apple for every 6 inches to 12 inches on the tree. And if you'll do that early enough, it will encourage the tree to bear annually instead of biannually.
4: Okay, so this year if I'm not having any apples, I just leave it and next year I would do that. I would try to thin those early.
3: Yes, you would just try to thin them in early spring, and not early spring, but a couple of weeks after the blossoms drop, when the apples right. are dime sized.
4: All right. It looks like I'm not going to have. I just had. I had a plethora of apples last year, and I have none this year. So I guess it's best thing. <laughs>
3: I don't. know. Yeah, and right. it's just one of those things that they do, and that's about the only way around it. All right, Bonnie. Right. Thanks so Thank
2: much you for you your much.
4: call. You Say bet. Bye.
2: Uh, Next listener, Tom, says, is it it okay to just spot spray 24D in hotter weather?
3: Ah, not really. You know, if you went out in the evening and it was just here or there, just a few spots, probably if that's away from plants and it's below 85 degrees. But, you know, people will say, oh, you can spray 24D in the summer, but as long as it's below 85, but I still, when it's sprayed, when it's cool, if it's too much, I still see it drift. All right. If they need something to spot spray that's going to be more temperature safe, Image All-in-One Lawn Weed Killer has far fewer restrictions, and All right. it doesn't harm the lawn. So
2: perfect. We need to take a break. When we come back, Bonnie and Sandy, you'll be next. Then Larry. Number to call: eight zero one five seven five eight two five five. Text us: five seven five zero zero.
0: I'm Dave Colley.
2: So we have a number of callers waiting we want to get right back to the phone lines here bonnie is in sandy bonnie good morning what was your question
4: um i have a the section of my yard that's in the sun most of the time has quite a bit of clover in it and i kind of like to get rid of it what are your suggestions how what's the best way to get rid of it
3: how often do you fertilize your lawn
4: Um, I do the ISA four times a year
3: thing. So it's getting plenty of nitrogen. I just wanted to make sure of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Products containing an herbicide called triclopyr. Uh, So yeah, Turflon, ester. I mean, these are all... So T-R-I-C-L-O-P-Y-R, triclopyr. So there's a number of them out there. Turflon, ester is one. Um, then another would be something like T zone. It's getting a little hot for T zone, but this turf on ester, it seems to do a pretty good job against clovers. So you could try it out. It'll kill dandelions and t- things. It takes three or four weeks, but that's one you could look at. Now I, I will say that. You don't want, the, you know, especially if you don't want the clover taking over the entire lawn, I get spraying it. But when they do go to flower, they can be valuable for not only honeybees, but other pollinators. And so I just always throw that out there.
4: Okay. Well, I hurt the bees. I guess if it kills the clover, it'll hurt the bees. It'll just take away
3: some of their habitat, their forage area, Mm -hmm. but if it's killing your entire lawn and it's that thick, you may need to consider spraying it out to at least, you won't get rid of it a hundred percent, but it will kind of knock it back.
4: I've been trying to dig it out, you know, a little at a time. And uh, I did that with the dandelions and, and I didn't have anything get killed. I didn't have brown spots or anything. It was just a long Yeah,
3: it is a very long, and if you have that much, it'd be Tedious, And so you could maybe try that Turflon ester and see if it does anything for
4: you. Okay. Well, thank you very much.
2: All right, Bonnie, thanks for your call this morning. Uh, Next listener, Ton, says they have a five-year-old peach tree. It's had fruit every year. Uh, But this year they're seeing bubbles of sap toward the bottom of the tree, and they don't see any fruit, and they're wondering if you have any help.
3: I would check for Greater Peach Tree Borer, B-O-R-E-R, Um, that, especially if you see that sap right at the base of the tree. Now, if it's higher up on the trunk, some other things you can look at would be the, uh, a disease called Cytospora and then, Another one out there that I've seen this year: flat-headed borer. The peach trees have taken it on the nose with our winter, but if it's right at the base, it's probably greater peach tree borer. Look up USU's fact sheet on it, and it'll give you an approximate spray schedule: mid June, mid July, mid August, mid September, okay, and so then yeah, thirty-eight okay. plus is probably one they could use or Captain Jack's dead bug
1: brew.
2: All right. Larry is on the line in Colville. Good morning, uh, Larry. What was your question this morning?
1: Hey, yeah, good morning. Uh, I have a cabin property up above Park City, a place uh, near One Ship with a lot of pine trees on the property. And uh, I have some yellow bellied sapsuckers attacking uh, various trees. And a few in particular, they're just feasting on them, um, just creating a pattern. And one in particular, it's a fairly healthy uh, young tree maybe uh, 20 feet tall already uh, and it's girdled the tree and I know ways to deter these birds um, it's a variety of a woodpecker and uh, but I've heard that you can uh, put peat moss or something around the tree and wrap it with burlap and grow the bark back and so I guess the question is can I do something like that uh, to save the tree, because uh, I really, I really want to save this and a few other trees if I can.
3: No, that that would not do that. That would just encourage rot and or pests. There's no magic paint or wrap that you can put around a tree to try to help it heal. Besides just getting rid of what's causing the problem and letting the tree do it on its own, and uh-huh. it eventually will. Now on those sap suckers, you're probably already aware. That you have to have a permit to be able to, we'll just call it destructively harvest them. But um, to prevent them from getting in, you actually can use a wrap, something like a metal screen or a fiberglass fabric that you would wrap the trunk in as high as you can get. And to discourage them, they might just jump to other trees, but those would be some things to deter them. But you need to contact the state to see if you can get a permit to harvest them because of the damage they're doing.
1: Yeah. Okay. So if you find out that the tree uh, is going to die, like if I can't save it, um, is it possible to cut a pine tree off at maybe two feet, uh, three feet, and have it potentially grow back?
3: Nope. Once it once you've cut that trunk, unless there's branches there that already have green growth, it will not Mm. regenerate.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I need to cut it high enough where there's branches. Where there's healthy branches. And
3: it will take years and years to do. But that's how you'd have to to do it.
0: Okay.
2: All right, Larry, thanks so much for your call this morning. Next listener, Ton is in Linden. They have a Pacific Sunset maple that some of the branches have leafed out, but now they're wilted. Um, the tree is east-facing. They haven't sprayed any weed killer, so that's not it. Any thoughts? Should they apply something? What would cause some of the branches to be wilting?
3: Nothing good, un- unfortunately, You know, because they are wilting down, but there could be a few things going on. Um, sometimes if they were bigger trees when they're planted and there was twine around the trunk, that can start to choke them off. Mm-hmm. But there's some vascular wilt diseases such as verticillium, phytophthora and others that are common in maples that will get into certain branches and cause random branch death. And I'm I'm hoping that's not it, but that's a very common one in maple.
2: Okay, I'm going to live dangerously and go to Tom in Leighton. Tom, we have just a couple of minutes to answer your question. Uh, good morning. What was your question this morning?
0: So i I've got a uh, infestation of what I think is Indian goosegrass in my park strip, and can I get rid of it without having to dig it out or damaging the other bluegrass that's in there?
3: The only thing you could do is let it grow taller than the bluegrass, and then get what's called a wicking wand. From someplace like Amazon, IFA, Steve Regan, local farm store, and these wicking wands look like a hockey stick, but they have a sponge on the bottom and will give you mixing instructions for a glyphosate product, and you just rub it across the tops of the grass so you don't touch the bluegrass, and that's about the only way to selectively take it out.
0: Okay. Um, otherwise, I just need to dig it out and start over?
3: Uh, I would kill everything and start over because you're never going to get rid of all the roots.
0: Okay.
2: All right. Thank you. All right, Tom. Thanks for your call this morning. A next listener says, or asks Tom, when's a good time to plant a rhubarb plant and what fertilizer is best for rhubarb?
3: There's no time like the present. If you can find them, you generally get rhubarb in early spring. Sometimes you can find them established in number one nursery containers. But they're transplanting them. So if they're moving them, I would wait until they're dormant this fall or early spring okay. and move them within And then as far as a fertilizer, just a teaspoon of lawn fertilizer, as long as it's not weed and feed, would be fine. Spread around out around the edges.
2: Okay. Also, they want to know, do hostas need fertilizer?
3: If they're doing well, no, they don't.
2: Okay. uh, We still have a minute. So next listener wants to know, uh, they live in Garland. They want to know if they need to do renewal pruning on a gooseberry bush.
3: I would, especially if it's three or four years old. You just take those branches from the middle. That's going to be interesting with all the thorns those things get. But you take 20 to 25% of the branches out every year and you remove the biggest branches because gooseberries and currants will produce fruit on wood between about two and five years old. Mm-hmm. And then those branches slow down, and that's why you remove them when they're at four years old.
2: What's the life expectancy of a gooseberry? 15
3: to 25 years, depending. They're, they do get some borers in them okay. um, that they can sometimes go down with, but they're an interesting crop.
2: All right. We need to take a break for the top of the hour news. More coming up on the KSL Greenhouse.